All right, welcome back, everybody. <clears throat> welcome back. Glad that you're here. If you could uh, turn to Philippians chapter 4 uh, after you find your way back to your seat. Hopefully you found a warm spot or you have a blanket or something. Hopefully you're doing well temperature-wise this morning. Uh, we're going to look at Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to take a just a brief look at verses 4 through 7. Uh, Philippians 4, 4 through 7. I had lunch with a friend yesterday, and as we were talking, uh, he started to think about the businesses that if you knew now, if you, if you knew then what you know now, what this year would look like, what business would you have started uh, in January or, you know, in last year? Uh, probably would have started a Zoom business, right? Some, something that would be online meetings. Uh, you know, for me, we would have probably started a dog grooming business. We could not find a dog groomer anywhere. Uh, he was talking about different stocks that had you invested in them in January. What they're doing right now would have been crazy. Uh, and, and one of the things that um, has been in high demand over the past nine months especially uh, is therapists and counselors. If you could have started a practice in counseling, uh, regularly we are sending people uh, in the community to different Christian counselors that we know because of the high rate of anxiety and despair and hopelessness and grief and worry and fear that is taking place within our culture. If you had started a practice in January, uh, like many of the counselors that we have in our list, uh, you would have been increasing your rates and saying that we can't meet needs anymore because we're overbooked. That's the reality that we're living in. And so to meet that as Christ followers, uh, you have the spirit of Christ within you. Uh, the Holy Ghost resides within you. And so there is no better person uh, that God would send, uh, for you to send. There is no one better for uh for those who are struggling with fear and anxiety, got a bad mic here. Thanks, Ryan. Sorry about that. Uh, there's no better person for the Lord to bring into your path. And then someone who's struggling with one of those with one of those issues, you who have the spirit of Christ, you who have faith in God through Christ Jesus, you who are experiencing peace in spite of your circumstances, you who are overflowing with joy uh, that can't be dictated by the negative circumstances around you. Uh, all around, there are people who are seeking what you have in Christ Jesus. And so it would not surprise me if you, like myself, uh, over the past month or two months, have experienced a greater opportunity uh, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people as, um, as there is so much need in our culture. So let's read Philippians 4, 4 through 7, and, and then let's get a better understanding of how we can do ministry in these times. Philippians 4, verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. 
Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the kind of verse that you scribble on a three by five card and you put on your mirror or you put on your desk or your nightstand. Uh, it's taped onto the, my monitor so that when I sit down, I look at it. It's a memory verse. It's a passage that you want to be familiar with because it addresses so many things at once. And we'll get into the particulars about the passage in just a minute. But let me just say that as we experience a culture that is going through an epidemic of anxiety and fear and worry and distress and anguish, this passage can give us insight into how to best minister to those. You know, over the past few months, I've just been collecting stories about the anxiety and despair that people are feeling. And it hasn't been difficult. It's been very easy, but it's given me insight into one of Jesus's favorite phrases when he describes eternal separation from God. When Jesus describes the eternal condition of those who will be separated from God, he uses a phrase. He uses a phrase that you're familiar with. It's the seven or eight times in the gospel of Matthew and also in Luke. And the phrase is weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? Those who will be cut off from God for eternity will experience weeping. That's just, you understand weeping, just crying and um, and gnashing of teeth. Well, I didn't understand gnashing of teeth. It was a, I, we, we don't say gnashing a lot. It's a gnashing. It's not gnashing, it's gnashing, right? We don't say that word a lot. Uh, but what is gnashing of teeth? Well, this cultural epidemic of anxiety has given me insight into that because one of the possible ranges of meaning of this word gnashing is um, the, the anxiety that overwhelms you so that you have a somatic response to anxiety. Soma is the Greek word for body. Uh, you'll see that in some um, new church plants. They'll call it a soma or a soma community or something somatic. Somatic symptoms are symptoms that reside in your, that, you know, they come out in your body. Your body will demonstrate a symptom. Um, and this gnashing of teeth is a somatic response to stress and despair and anxiety. It's one of Jesus's favorite phrases, and it denotes, according to my Bible dictionary, extreme anguish and utter despair. Extreme anguish and utter despair. Somatic anxiety, I'm just going to read a couple more definitions as if you needed some sort of clinical definition, but you'll understand in a minute. But somatic anxiety is the physical manifestation of anxiety, which is contrasted with cognitive anxiety, which is the mental manifestation of anxiety or the specific thought processes that occur during anxiety, such as concern or worry. What does that mean in layman's term? Well, for us, it just means you get hit once in the head, right? You get hit in your mental processes when you experience 
anxiety. That is, you're overly worried, you're consumed, your thought process is overwhelmed by the problem at hand or the difficulty or the fear or how do you process a difficult situation. Your mind gets hit once. That's the cognitive anxiety that we experience. But the somatic experience is that you get hit a second time. Once you're experiencing anxiety and despair and worry and fear and all those things, um, you get hit once in your mind and then again in your body. The symptoms associated with your body experiencing anxiety include abdominal pain, chest pain, fatigue, dizziness, insomnia, headaches, and other things. Your body doesn't know what to do with your lack of peace. It doesn't know what to do with it. And it manifests itself in physical issues. You go to a doctor and then there may not be any physical thing wrong with you, but you can describe the pain, you can describe the fear, you can describe the worry, you can describe how your body is handling things. The, the number of broken teeth over the last six months um, has exponentially increased because that's a somatic response to anxiety, fear, worry, and stress. As if anxiety itself wasn't enough. It's an emotion characterized by an unpleasant state of inner turmoil often accompanied by nervous behavior, such as pacing. It includes subjectively unpleasant feelings of dread over anticipated events, whether real or imagined. Anxiety <clears throat> usually generalized and unfocused as an overreaction to a situation that is only subjectively seen as menacing. It is often accompanied by muscular tension, restlessness, fatigue, and problems in concentration. You probably didn't need some of those clinical type definitions, but I gave them to you because there is a world of people in our culture who are experiencing those symptoms. and. Rather than me just telling you one story after another of how people are experiencing this, I thought it better to start with sort of a clinical understanding of anxiety. But rest assured, I could share story after story after story of people that I know or people that I've counseled or people that have come to me or people that I've just read about or uh, people that other pastors have shared with me uh, or just story after story of sad experiences that people are going through right now as a result of the general condition in our nation and in our world. <clears throat> I'm skipping stories. But if you've never experienced anxiety or you know someone who has suffered from anxiety, you know that it can be really debilitating. You know that it can instantly shut a body down and it can shut a person down. So let's get on to the text because I want you to know why I'm preaching about this today. I have three goals for you, prayerful goals, pastoral goals for you. The three goals I want you to get out of this passage is number one, I want you to live and model a life free from the type of anxiety that you see in people who aren't yet Christ followers. You're a Christ follower, I assume, many of you, as people who would endure 40-something degree temperatures to sit in the parking lot with a 
you know, an interesting view behind you. There's a hundred things you could be doing, but I'm assuming many of you are Christ followers. As those who proclaim Christ and have received Jesus and live by faith, I want you to be free from anxiety and to experience peace. I want you to live a life and model a life to the culture, to your neighbors, to your co-workers. I want you to live that out so that people can see that the gospel of Jesus Christ brings peace, even when the circumstances don't, it just seems to not match. You shouldn't have peace, but you have peace. Why do you have peace? So I want you, that's the number one goal. I want you to live and model a life free from anxiety. Number two, just from a person to person, I, I want you to experience peace. <laughs> I want you to experience deep peace. Peace that Paul describes as peace that surpasses all understanding. It doesn't make sense why you have so much peace. That if somebody looking at your life were to say, oh my gosh, you've been through this trial and that trial and you have this situation and you have that situation, what is it that makes you smile right now? Why do you have joy in your life right now? I want you to experience personally what that feels like. To have such a renewed relationship with God that you are overflowing with peace. You have peace to spare. You want some peace? I got extra peace. Why do you have extra peace? Because of my relationship with God in Christ Jesus, I want you to experience that kind of peace. I want you to be so peaceful that no matter what is happening in your life, you can just pass it out to everybody around you. They just, they can't get enough of your peace. Your peace overflows into people. It is in a cup, overflowed, poured out, and without measure. That's the second goal. <clears throat> the third goal is I want you to be able to share the gospel of peace with the people that God has placed in your life for a purpose. There's a reason why you live where you live. There's a reason why you have a relationship with the people that you have a relationship with. There's a reason why the Lord is bringing people to mind for you to think about, pray for, and contact. Uh, because people are experiencing anxiety and peace Lessness. I don't, even, I don't even know if that's a word, but they are experiencing this sort of no peace and despair and anguish. People that you know that God has placed in your path, that if you'll just open your eyes, Jesus said the gospel, uh, the, the fields are ripe. Open your eyes, he says, the field is ripe. Pray that God would provide people to go out into the field and to work because, because the fields are ripe, the harvest is there, there are people out there who need to hear what you have to say. That's my third goal. So I want you to live in lo uh, and model a life free from anxiety. I want you to experience peace, and I want you to be able to share the gospel of peace with people that God has placed in your life. So let's get back to the text. And I want to make this really clear because this is less of a how to get rid of anxiety and experience peace sermon. This is not a how-to passage. Uh, we believe in exegetical preaching and expository preaching where I don't just sort of yank a text out of context and just slap it against any problem that I see in society. The author wasn't writing this particular text to combat anxiety. That's not why he wrote this. It's a misunderstanding of the passage, though it has bearing on that. And to approach the text in this way narrows the full range of its meaning, right? This, this text comes in a context. The author had people in mind, Paul writing to his beloved Philippians. And to narrow it as an anxiety how-to passage shortchanges the fullness of this letter and this text and its context. 
Anytime you get to the end of one of Paul's epistles, that's what we call the letters that he wrote to a group of people who would often just meet in a house, in a house church situation. They would get a letter. A guy would walk in. I got mail, right? One's from Paul. Oh, let's open it. And they would open it and they would gather together and they would read it many times in one sitting with Paul in mind, writing to them about probably questions that they had or circumstances that were going on. And they would write or send a, a person to Paul. And in this case, Epaphroditus has gone from uh, Philippi um, in the year 60 to 62 AD, has gone to Paul. Paul's in prison in Rome. He had to rent his own prison, his own house. And he had a guard that would come and clock in and would hang around all day. And, and Paul had to pay for the guard and he had to pay for the house and he had to pay for his living expenses, but he couldn't live. And he couldn't really make a living. So uh, friends and family would have to come and visit Paul. And the church at Philippi had heard of his situation. And they sent um, an envoy, a guy named Epaphroditus, just in case you're looking for baby names, right? Epaphroditus. Um, they sent Epaphroditus. Hey, let's just all pool our cash together and we'll strap it to Epaph. I don't know what they called him, Epaphroditus, or uh, I don't know. Let's just give it to Epaphroditus and he'll make the trip over from Philippi uh, to Rome, and we're just going to meet Paul's needs because we love him. And so that's what happened, and Paul was refreshed. And so in the process of that, Epaphroditus almost died. He got really sick. I don't know if from the trip or from the journey or for or from just uh, something that happened. He just got really sick, and he almost died, and Paul is expressing lament, and yeah, I'm glad he's okay. He's, he's better now, and he sent him back with this letter in the year 62 AD. And so when we think about a letter, that context matters, right? That context matters. But Paul brings the body of the letter to close with a rapid fire flurry of seven exhortations, seven things that you should do. He doesn't have time to go into detail for all of them, but he's just going to rapid fire here, do this, do this, do the seven of them. And we're just covering the first four or five in this passage here. And all of these exhortations should be interpreted as examples of what it looks like to behave as citizens of the gospel. That's what he started with in chapter 1. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God, and because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you, you should live like a citizen of another nation. You're not a citizen of this nation, Paul would say to them. You're, you're, you're not a Roman citizen, even though you are. You're not a, a, a Jewish-Israeli citizen, even though you might literally be. You're a citizen of a coming kingdom, and as such, you should live your life in this way. And these seven sort of rapid-fire encouragements are, are what he's saying to tell you how to live that. Why does this matter? Why am I going into all that? Um, because there's a danger to bad hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the principle of Bible study where you understand what the Scripture meant to the original people, and then you take the principle and it transfers... 2020 years to us and now we're trying to understand what did this mean to them what did the author mean what's authorial intent what did the holy spirit meant when he led paul to write this to a group of people and then what does it mean to us secondarily and there's a danger in bad hermeneutics that's lifting a passage out of its context and forcing an author to say what he never meant to say to a people who he never knew would read it uh, it's just a bad practice and so we go through all that just to make sure that you're clear about why we're preaching in this passage and why we take the time. So let's get back into it with that in mind. 
Paul is giving them instructions on how to live as a citizen in the new kingdom. And in verse 4, he gets to two commands. And it's really just one command repeated. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. This is a command and it's repeated twice for emphasis. If Paul were texting this to you, right, he would use all caps. Uh, he might even find a cool GIF or something. He, or he may use like the slam effect. Rejoice, right? Rejoice, rejoice. He would do something to get your attention. By repeating this, he wants them to rejoice, to rejoice and to rejoice always. He says, what's even more striking, uh, one of my uh, commentaries says, what's even more striking is the addition of the word always. Rejoicing is always in season. It's always the right time for you to rejoice. The focus means that the Philippians can have joy in something that is always true and does not depend on unpleasant or pleasant circumstances, obviously because Paul is writing from prison. His freedoms have been stripped. And yet he's saying rejoice. Matter of fact, the book of Philippians has been called the book of joy because over 10 times in this, this short letter, he's talking about joy, overwhelming joy, and rejoicing and rejoicing. And Paul has been in prison. If you remember the context of Philippians in this letter, he's been in prison for like five years now. He went to Jerusalem in 57 with um, you know uh, an offering to help the church there. And he got arrested, a mob tried to get him, and the Roman government, the, the, the military, uh, seized him to protect him from the mob, and then uh, he learned that they were going to assassinate him. That was all back in 57. And then they moved him to Caesarea, and he was imprisoned in Caesarea for two years while they brought their legal case against him. And then at that point, Paul was like sick of the trial process. So he said, I appeal to Caesar. <laughs> you remember then they were like, well, if you hadn't appealed to Caesar, we could have just let you go. And he was like, wow, that would have been nice to know that before. But instead, they send, stick him on a boat. Right? Extradition is not a quick thing in the Roman world. They stick him on a boat. He gets shipwrecked. They winter in a different place. It's it's a, like a nine-month journey just to get to Rome. And then he's in Rome for two more years just awaiting a trial before Caesar that may or may not ever happen. So that's what's striking is that Paul is telling them to rejoice in the worst of circumstances. Rejoicing is a willful action. Rejoicing is an attitude that doesn't depend on circumstances. Paul has overflowing joy. The more I've read Philippians, I'm convinced that Paul is having a personal spiritual revival in terrible circumstances. You just read this book. He's, he's overflowing with joy and rejoicing and hope and gratitude. And he's in a terrible situation. So he's saying to rejoice, 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 rejoice. It's almost like he had that scribbled on his mirror. Paul, whatever you do, rejoice. What about you? Do you struggle to rejoice in your circumstances right now? What's going on in your life might be legitimate 
You might be experiencing pain or anxiety or frustration or difficulty or turmoil or a trial. Maybe it's a health crisis. Maybe it's a, um, a career crisis. Maybe it's a financial crisis. Maybe it's a relationship crisis. Whatever your crisis is, Paul's instructions to you are rejoice, rejoice. And that's intentional. You have to choose that. If you're in Christ, you have ample reason to rejoice. You don't have to live a negative life. You don't have to live a life uh, that's critical and bitter and uh, focusing on what's negative. You can rejoice because the Holy Spirit that resides within you can cause that to overflow rejoicing. Let's look at the second, uh, the third command in verse 5. After he says, rejoice, rejoice, then he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Uh, let your reasonableness, your translation may say gentleness. It may say um, forbearance. It may say moderation. It's a tough word to translate. Uh, a lot of commentaries have it different, but let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Um James 5.8 says, you also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Let's get to know what this is meaning. He starts, let's start with the phrase, the Lord is at hand. It's difficult to know what he means. Does he mean that spiritually Jesus is with us, right? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, that Jesus' presence is right here with us right now. Is that what he means? Um, rejoice, rejoice, be gentle among people because Jesus is right here with you and he was gentle. Is that what he means? The proximity-wise, Jesus is with you? Or does he mean the return of Jesus is at hand? That is, Jesus' second coming is imminent. He's returning. And when he comes, when Jesus comes back, he will take Christ's followers to an eternal kingdom and to our salvation and our glorification. And the judgment day will happen at Jesus' coming. Is that the idea? The eschatological, end times understanding that Jesus is coming again. It's difficult to know. But we can think and we can believe, we can lean toward the idea that it is the second sense, that Jesus' second coming is near. So because Jesus' return is imminent, you have a choice in how you respond to people right now. Be gentle, Paul's saying. Be gentle because Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, you're going to be airlifted out of your negative, painful trials and circumstances. And you're going to be in, in paradigm. You're going to be in heaven with the presence of God. Keep your eyes upward. Lift your gaze heavenward. Jesus is coming and you'll be saved. And it also helps you to be gentle with people. So because Jesus' return is imminent, we can respond to wrongs and to situations with gentleness. Let's, let's understand the word gentleness. Gentleness, the Greek word, is not being unduly rigorous, being satisfied with a little less than what you're due. It's graciousness, another commentator says, it's graciousness and willingness to forego retaliation when you're threatened or provoked. You understand this, right? Somebody cuts you off and it provokes you, right? And you can either retaliate, right, with one hand, or you can 
smile and wave and be gentle when provoked. Let me just make it a little bit more real because we've had a situation <laughs> um, and I have fielded question after question, request after request, day after day after day to the point where I'm, it's just a situation, all right? Um, one of our neighbors owns the corner up here and he's absolutely 100% free to post political signs on his own property, okay? We also have a sign on that property. It's a church sign, it points to us. You may see that sign when you drive by. We don't own that land. By his own generosity and agreement with Rock Hill and friendliness out of his own kind heart, he's allowed us to put a sign there. Okay? It's his right, it's his property, it's his situation. If he wants to put political signs, a thousand of them all over that corner, that's his legal right. And I support his Second Amendment right to free speech. 100% as American citizen, I'm glad that he's exercising his right, whether I agree or disagree, in the same way that one of our other neighbors posts a host of signs up and down the street here expressing his own point of view. While I didn't choose to do either of those two things, expressing one political ideology in response to things, or uh, his, I, I'm not, that's not what the issue is about here. But I get request after request, angry requests. Move those signs, man. Why are you supporting this political candidate? Or why are you not supporting? Why is your sign up there? Why is it, it's six inches away instead of 20 inches away? And I, I can't tell you the number of, so let me just say clearly to you, the church here. As a church, we don't endorse any pol political ideology or a candidate as an organization. We just don't. We promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our message, a biblical message of hope and salvation in Christ Jesus. Personally, you carry your convictions based on scripture, based on prayer. You carry that into the voting box, and I encourage you to do that. I encourage you to vote your convictions and to vote your passions, but as an organized group of Christ followers, we promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not a politician, not a candidate, not a political ideology. We promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. I just want to make that very, very clear. That's our main and primary message. So in response to this, in response to this passage, we are to be gentle and let our gentleness be known to everyone because the imminent return of Jesus Christ. What does that mean for us? I'm taking too long on this, but here's what it means. Could I have been exacting and rigorous and stomp up the hill and demand that our sign be removed or that our political signs be separated by six feet or more to let people? Yeah, I could have been a. I could have been that way. I could have been confrontational. I could have. I could have demanded. I could have just walked up there and ripped the signs out, which I'd never encouraged anybody to do. I don't want anybody to do. I don't want you to do that. <laughs> 
And listen, I've dealt with this daily for weeks. I could have walked up the hill and not been gentle, but Jesus's return is imminent. And on the other end of those signs is a soul. And it's a soul that I don't know if that soul is experiencing peace with God in Christ Jesus or weeping and gnashing of teeth and anxiety and fear and turmoil. So could I have made a big deal about this? Could I have done all those things? Sometimes it's better just to take the wrong and not to feel the need to always defend yourself anytime you're provoked, especially when a soul is at stake. So let's put this one verse together. The plight of the person who is lost has no peace with God, is an enemy with God, is experiencing temporal suffering and torment and despair of soul. And they're, because the return of Christ is imminent, they're going to experience an eternal existence of despair and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so because of that, they don't need your attitude, Christ follower. They don't need you to be provoked and petty about lesser things at the expense of their own soul. Christ follower, you must do better. You must be gentle. You must learn to prioritize what can be absorbed by you in the grace of God and, and, and what just can't. You must prioritize a person over a petty instance. See, because an election is going to come and go and... Somebody's going to get elected, hopefully, right? <laughs> Something's going to happen. And at the end of that, we're going to have to exist next to our neighbors in this community. And we're going to have to take a stand again for a long time over the gospel of Jesus Christ and living as people of the light and people of peace in hostile times rather than peace times in the future. You could be picked up and moved anywhere in the world and experience hostility. And you're going to have to take a decision. The, the return of Jesus is imminent. Is it better for me to absorb this by the grace of God and be gentle? Because Proverbs says a gentle answer what turns away wrath I'll tell you what my course of action has been just so you know I marched up the hill and I talked to the homeowner and I said first of all about these signs I need to humbly apologize it's my fault I should have when we merged as a church I should have come here and and investigated, is it okay for us even to have our son on your property? And the immediate response was, no, you didn't. It was hurt there. I assumed something I shouldn't have assumed. And I humbly apologized and said, I, I'm, I'm really sorry. That's my fault. I shouldn't have let this situation sort of escalate. And, and so I apologize. And you know what happened? De-escalation. Peace. Conversation started, helpful conversation. And about these signs, I want you to know, secondly, I didn't ask anybody to move them. I didn't ask anybody to take them down. I didn't, I support you as a U.S. citizen and your right to free speech. And we can have those conversations and I would open it. But, but I just want you to know that I'm not antagonizing you and your rights on your own property. And so I, we just had these conversations and it was, it was helpful. It opened dialogue where before there was resistance and it was good. It was good. He says, let your reasonableness or let your gentleness be known to everyone because the Lord is at hand. 
I took way too long on that. Let's move on to number four. The fourth command is don't be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about anything. Right? That's easy. Just don't be anxious. All right? You can leave. Right? Just don't be anxious about anything. Uh, it's a very simple command in that it's not confusing, but it's probably the most difficult thing that you'll experience as a result of this sermon. Just don't worry about anything. Don't be afraid of anything. Psalm 127.2 says that it's in vain that you rise up early and you go to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil, because God gives to his beloved sleep. My soul can rest in peace. One of the greatest hallmarks about a Christ follower is that you can sleep at peace. When you lay your head on your pillow at night, you don't have to eat the bread of anxious toil. Isn't that wonderful? You can, if you feel anxious, you can have a prayer. You can pour your heart out. You can cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. You can come to Christ Jesus because he says, come to me if you're weary and burdened in Matthew eleven twenty seven, for I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. You have promises in Christ Jesus that means you can go to bed at night completely at peace in spite of your circumstances. Faith is the remedy to anxiety. Faith is the act of willfully resting securely in the one that you trust can do all things. And prayer is the expression of that faith. You catch that? Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, present your request to God. You express faith when you pray to someone that you don't see, i.e. Jesus. When you talk to Jesus about the issues that are burdening you, you're expressing faith. The more you pray, the more your expression of faith. The less you pray, the less experience of peace because the less expression of faith in the one who you believe can do all things. Isaiah 35 says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come and save you. What a great verse. Jeremiah 17, 7 through 10 says, Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He's like a tree planted by the water that sends its roots out by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and it's not anxious in the year of drought. You might say, well, I guess I don't have enough faith. I guess I'm experiencing anxiety. I'm anxious. I'm worried. I'm fearful. I'm in despair. And I'm a Christian. So you may say, I don't, maybe I don't have enough faith. Listen to this. We know that faith comes by hearing, Romans 10, 17, that the more you saturate yourself in the Word of God, the more you allow the Word of God to wash over you like we're doing now, you're hearing the Scripture, something wells up within you, and it's faith that comes by hearing because the Holy Spirit activates your ears in a different way when you hear Scripture that He wrote, and He applies it to your soul. Listen to Daniel. Daniel, in Daniel 7, he says, My spirit was within me was anxious because I'd seen all these visions and I was alarmed. So what did he do? So I approached one of those who stood there and I asked him for truth. Daniel needed truth. He was alarmed. He was anxious. He was worried. The greatest remedy to your soul is the Word of God, seeking truth. It promotes faith. Faith is expressed in prayer, and you can see how this gives you peace 
that surpasses all understanding. Jesus taught extensively on worry, fear, and anxiety. I won't read it, but look at Matthew chapter 6. Let's look at the last command here that we're going to talk about. Verse 6b, the rest of that verse Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So if you put all that together from a heart of rejoicing, a heart of gratitude, a heart that is focused on what is good in Christ, you take that to God in prayer, letting the word wash over you, and a transformation takes place when you rejoice, and when you rejoice, and when you pray, and when you seek truth, and when you rejoice. All these things happen in your life. It it transforms you so that you experience the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. And that peace, look at verse, at the end of the verse there, Verse 7, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. It doesn't just give you peace. It becomes the security guard for your heart and your mind. It stands guard. I'm going to guard your heart. I'm going to guard your mind. The peace of God will guard. It's surpassing understanding. It means it's, it's beyond understanding with your mind. It's just a peace that overwhelms you. The Greek word for peace is irene, where we get the name Irene. You know somebody named Irene? Right? Or you heard the word shalom. It's the Hebrew version of that. There's a range of meanings for that. But this is the range that Irene means, this peace means. The peace that he's describing is a result of the gospel, the result of the good news of being reconciled to God through Christ Jesus. Listen to what this peace is. It's the tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ. And so it fears nothing from God, and because of that, it can be content with its earthly lot, no matter what that is. Don't you want that? Don't you want that? The tranquility of soul that is assured of its salvation in Christ Jesus. It meditates on the promise. Jesus says, I put you in the palm of my hand and nothing can snatch you away. I've got you. I'm your shield. I'm your place of refuge. I'm your strong tower. There's a hundred biblical metaphors for your salvation and it's security in Christ Jesus. And that leads to this overwhelming peace of a tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation, fearing nothing from God that can thereby be content with whatever the, the world throws at it. Isn't that something? The story that comes to mind in this is my uh, acquaintance, Chris Pleckenpole. Chris Pleckenpole was a captain and served in the Iraq war and he remembers being uh, seeing so many terrible things in the Iraqi war that at some point he found an empty tent and he just pulled up a chair and he sat in it and then he pulled up an empty chair and he just acted as though Jesus were there right next to him and he would just pour out his soul and by focusing his heart on Christ and praying and casting all his cares, this tent became a holy place to him and he began to experience this peace. So much so that many soldiers would come to him and say, Captain, why do you have this peace? What's going on? One soldier in particular came to him and Chris was able to share the gospel with him, uh, began to pray with him, began to disciple him, began to minister to him. 
And he says, after a period of months, this soldier who was racked with fear, racked with anxiety, racked with despair, racked with sleepless nights and, and struggle, began to be uh, overwhelmed with peace. And no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the mission, no matter where they were going in this, um, in this time of war, no matter what they were doing, he experienced peace. And, and he said it overwhelmed. It came to a kind of a, a point in which this story is unbelievable. But Chris says that this particular soldier was in a convoy and he was in one of the lead tanks and one of the lead tanks in a narrow passageway stalled. And it's stalled, and there's a dozen more tanks and transports and soldiers behind him. And one of the worst things that can happen is to be stalled in enemy territory. Uh, if you've seen any of these videos, they weave through some of these places, inhabited places, at high rates of speed to avoid stalling. But this tank stalled, and one of the captains said, you, go out there and fix the tank. So he goes out there and he fixes the tank and it's not long, maybe 10, maybe 15 minutes as he's digging in and getting all his tools and trying frantically to fix this while the tension is rising. And after a few minutes, he hears ping, ping, right? He's hearing these pings, these bullets firing off the side of the tank as he's trying to repair it. And he immediately knows there's sniper fire and, and the, the, uh, the people in the area, are, they understand that this is, this is a, an opportunity. And so he just begins to pray, oh, Lord Jesus, oh, Lord Jesus, and help me fix this. And 15 minutes go by, and he's just hearing an increasing barrage of bullets. And then there's chatter, and there's people behind him, and there's return fire, and it's just things are getting heated. He said, Chris, it took me 45 minutes to repair that tank. And he said, at, at each increasing level of intensity and gunfire, I felt the peace of God surrounding me as though there were angels just swatting bullets side to side. He said, I imagined and even giggled at one point that there were um, snipers who just knew that they're, what's wrong with this gun, right? I've got him in my sights and I can't hit this guy for anything. He said, I just laughed at that thought that the Lord was protecting me and giving me such an overwhelming sense of peace in the worst of circumstances that I, I could have taken three hours to prepare this tank. Now, everybody around him was not sharing the same experience that he was having, but he was having a revival right there. That's the way Chris described it. What can give a person in that situation peace? And if God can give that guy peace... Surely, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding can, can minister to you in the context of your health situation or your financial situation or your marriage situation or your job situation. If you would experience this, you must understand that the peace of God which surpasses all understanding comes by not being anxious, not being easily provoked, but by prayer and supplication, presenting your requests to God. I remind you of Mary and Martha. Martha is worried and upset about a great many things, but Jesus said, Mary, Martha, only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what's better, and that is to sit at my feet and to focus all of her gaze and attention on me, and it won't be stripped away from her. Christ follower, my goal for you is that you would 
live a life free from anxiety and that you would model peace to people in your neighborhood and at your workplace. But it's also for you to be experience that peace, to be overflowing with that peace. But also, if you're not yet in Christ, my hope for you is that you would experience the peace of God that comes from a right relationship through Christ Jesus. This world would tell you, if you're not in Christ, that there are many ways to God. Just choose one and be sincere about it. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus claims an exclusive gate to God in Christ Jesus. It's my prayer for you today that if you were to experience this peace, that you would experience it by giving your life to Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you would draw near to those. You've been ministering, you've been working, you've been speaking to people. It's my prayer that as your word washes over those, maybe they're tuning in here in person or maybe they're um, online. For those who are experiencing this anxiety and this fear, this despair, my prayer is that you would give them peace that you would flood them with the peace of God that comes through Christ Jesus. We thank you that it is available to us, that peace. I pray that Christ followers all around would just overflow with it, especially in these times when their neighbors need to hear it and they need to see it and they need to know the reason for the hope that they have in Christ. And would you let it be so? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.